This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Zephaniah is the fourth, it's the fourth little book back in the Old Testament from the, from the end of the Old Testament back. It's the fourth book. It's uh, only three chapters, Zephaniah chapter 3. And just the one verse, verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Isaiah 45, I am God and there is none else. Isaiah 46, I am God, there is none like me. Psalm 77, who is so great a God as our God? 2 Chronicles 2, 5, great is our God above all gods. So throughout scripture, the Bible makes it plain that there is only one true and living God. He's above all of the gods of men's imaginations. What is so special about our God, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, the God of Judaism, the one true and living God? What's him, sets him apart from all the other gods that men worship? Hinduism has millions of objects of worship, gods. Mormonism believes that man can become a god. Islam has its Allah. Shintoism, which is the, the ethnic religion of Japan, is a religion of worshipping at shrines. They have 80,000 shrines and a multitude of gods. So what's different about our God, the God of the Bible? There are those who say there's no difference. It's just a mythical God something of our own making, that by virtue of the fact that we were brought up in the Western world and we brought up in Great Britain, uh, that we culturally embrace the religion that we were brought up in, like others in their nation embrace the religion they were brought up in. People say there's no difference. We're all the same. It's all nonsense. But our God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, is profoundly different. Different in character, different in nature, different in practice, different in the ultimate plan for mankind, different in mercy, different in compassion, different in love, different in forgiveness, different in every way possible. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The Lord, your God. We have a God who is personal. Personal. Christianity is not really, although men try to make it out to be, it's not really a state religion. It's not really a national religion. Not like Islam. Islam from the top of the government down is a state religion. You have to be 
a Muslim in a Muslim nation. If you don't, you may have to pay heavy taxes if you want to live there. That's the way it is. Everybody has to comply with the Sharia laws. If you don't, then you'll either be fined, flogged, or executed. So it's unlike Christianity. Christianity goes by conversion. But Islam goes by conquest. They conquer you. Islam, from its earliest beginnings, was a religion of conquest. Great swathes of the Middle East were conquered, and people were forced at the point of death to convert or else. But Christianity is not like that, except there's been two dark periods of the Crusades and the Inquisitions where people were forced to convert at the point of death, if necessary. But that was unchristian. That's not the Christ that we know. It's not the Christ of the Bible, is it? And so Christianity brings us into a personal relationship with God, the Lord, your God, your God. But even though it's a personal relationship we have with God, it's not a private one. It's not a private one. And that's why we try to evangelize, we try to witness, we try to testify, we try to bring people to Christ, not by compulsion or coercion, but by trying to persuade and to share and to do it in love and do it in grace. It's not a white man's religion, it's not a black man's religion, it's not a brown man, a yellow man, or a red man, it's not an orange man or a green man. <laughs> it's colorless, classless, sexless. It's for every nation, for all peoples. Our God is not a God of far off. He's not a God who's aloof. He's not uninvolved and detached. The belief of deism believes that God, whatever God is, created the universe, but then detached himself from it to let it get on however it wants to get on. But no personal involvement with human beings or anything else. That's deism. But theism believes in a personal God, a God who is involved, a God who makes it his business to be involved in our lives. And so you remember in the little book of Ruth, way back there, you don't need to turn to it, and how that Ruth, the Moabite woman, how she came back with Naomi, the Jewess, and how that she wanted to be with her for the rest of her life. In verse 16, Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. That time she spent in and around Naomi, she got, got to understand that Jehovah was the true and the living God. And she says, he's going to be my God. Your God will be my God. So she was making this very personal. So God is a personal God, but not a private 
God. We need to share Christ. We have a God who is present, the Lord your God, in the midst of you. It was ever God's intention to be present with his people. You can't be personal unless you're present. For God to have a personal relationship with us and for us to have a personal relationship with him, he has to be present. And right from the dawn of humanity, God was present and personal with Adam and Eve, was he not? Did he not come into the garden at the cool of the day? Every day. I don't know how long that was. I don't know how many days or weeks or months or even years that was. I don't know. But what I do know that every single day, in the cool of the day, that God made a personal appearance to Adam and Eve and communed with them, wanted to be with them, wanted his presence to be near them. In Genesis 7 and 1, do you remember the ark and how that when the ark was made and just before the flood came in Genesis 7 and 1, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Come into the ark. He didn't say go into the ark. He says come into the ark, implying that he was already there. And for 40 days, that ark <laughs> withstood all that storm and the winds and the rains and the fountains of the deep were broken up and the world was being destroyed around them. But God was with them and his, by his spirit and with his presence, he was with them in the ark. Come into the ark. And of course, we know that further to that, how that he closed the door. When people would want to get into the ark to save their lives, they had umpteen times of opportunity which they refused. Then he shut the door because he was in the ark. And so it's ever been God's desire to be with his people. We see it in the land of Goshen. Whenever the children of Israel was captive in Egypt and how there was that area of Egypt, Goshen, and how they were there and they prospered and they multiplied greatly. But then that Pharaoh rose up. He was frightened of them. He got scared of their numbers. And he made life hellish for them. Very difficult. It was a hard taskmaster. But in the midst of Goshen, God was with them. And God saved them and rescued them and delivered them. He didn't desert them. Whenever they needed him the most, he was there, right there with them with his presence. The tabernacle in the wilderness, whenever they made that great journey and all those 40 years, and how whenever they pitched that tent, as it were, that great tabernacle, and if you can imagine the 12 tribes all arranged by order around the central piece, which was the tabernacle, and then how there was the outer court and then the inner court, and then the innermost court, the holiest of holies. And right there on that ark between the cherubim was the glory of God, was the Shekinah glory of God. 
signifying God's presence right in the very midst of the camp. And he journeyed with them all through the wilderness in the camp. So it's ever God's desire to be present with his people. And then you come into the New Testament. And of course, he wants to come ever closer and become ever personal. And he sends his only begotten son, Emmanuel, God with us. God in human flesh. God born in the womb of a virgin and lived among us. And in John 1 and 14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God sent his son from heaven to come and dwell with us, to be with us. And those disciples could touch him and handle him and eat with him and talk with him and be with him. And God was getting ever closer. And then, of course, when he left, what did he say? I will send one just like me. And he'll just not be with you. He will be in you. God's Holy Spirit coming ever, ever closer. You can't get much closer than that. Sure, you can't. Where he, by his Spirit, now abides in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit on earth. And then, of course, and we read it just a couple of weeks ago when we looked at John 17 and Christ's wonderful prayer for, the, for his church. And you remember what his heart's cry was? Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one of us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. And so even though he's gone, and even though he sent his Holy Spirit to live within us, it's still not enough. He wants us to be permanently, forever, eternally, every moment of every day to be with him. That's how much he wants us. And in Revelation chapter 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Also there was no more sea. Sea speaks of separation. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor crying, nor sorrow. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Ah. So right since the garden in Eden, right to the New Jerusalem, 
God ever wanted a personal, close relationship with us to be present with us. Hmm. We have a God who is powerful, the mighty one. He's called the mighty one. Jesus says, all power and all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Actually, Christ has power over three words, heaven, earth, and hell itself. Glory to God. In Philippians chapter 2, if I can find it quickly here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <laughs> He's the mighty one. There are many potentates and emperors and kings and presidents, but all of them have a short spell. And all of them pass away, but the mighty one will never pass away. 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so he has power over heaven, earth, and hell. He's the mighty one. Pilate had the power of the sword. But it was a delegated power. It was a permitted power. When Jesus stood before him, he says, Do you not know that I have power to take your life? Jesus said, You would have no power at all except it's been given you. Hmm letting him know, putting him in his place. But God has delegated powers and authorities on earth. And there's rulership. As there should be rulership in the home and rulership in the church, there should be rulership in a nation. Because God knows we're a sinful nature and we're apt to rebel. And we live in a very rebellious world, isn't it? What's happening in the United States today? Utter rebellion. Utter rebellion. Anarchy. We've seen it on our own streets. Which is why God has governments. In, in Romans chapter 13, Paul writes about this. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. That doesn't mean God appointed Hitler. But it means generally God appoints authority, governments to govern nations, to keep things in check and in balance. Some abuse that. Some take that authority and use it wrongly and use it against people instead of for people. 
But the idea of authority is God's idea. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to, to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, that doesn't mean to say that if governments brings out laws which are against God's law, that we should accept that and do that. Because if it goes against God's law, then we're not obligated to do it. But if it doesn't go against God's law, and if we don't like it, we're still to do it. Are you with me? Because there's lots of laws that we don't like, but they're not against God's law. We just don't like them. We don't like to be overly taxed. But there you have it. That's the law. Got to pay our taxes. But if it's a law where we're deny God and go against the ordinance of God, then as we see in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, we can say, no, not going to do that. Daniel and the three Hebrew boys were faced with those choices. And you have to remember that in these days, we're reading about here in Romans, it was the Roman government was the ruling authority. And for a while, they treated Christianity as a sect of the Jews, a, a, a sect of the Jews. And because it was a sect of the Jews, they allowed Judaism to continue. But when it came to the point where you get certain Caesars who said, once a year, you must say that Caesar is Lord and you must burn incense and say Caesar is Lord, then Christians could no longer do that. Then they had to say, no, we can't do that. And of course, it cost many, many, many of their lives to, to say that. But that went against God's ordinances and God's commands. But other than that, we're to obey and not resist government. It's not our business to take up arms against government. Jesus and the disciples didn't do that. Remember, they were living under a pagan government. <laughs> and the Jews hated the Romans. But he never, he, he never encouraged them to take up arms against those occupying forces. And neither should we. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath. Because if you break the law, you're going to be punished. But also for conscience sake. So, it's, so therefore, you shouldn't resist. Not because if you resist, you're going to be punished. But for conscience sake. To keep your conscience right. To make sure you're not breaking the law so that it's not affecting your conscience. Because it's hard to live when your conscience is bad, isn't it? It's hard to live if, if your conscience is good and you're resisting your good conscience. 
It's hard to live under that. Therefore, you must be subject, not just because of wrath, but for conscience' sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor is due. And then over in 1 Peter, you don't need to turn to these, but I'll just turn 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 13. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorant of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Ah. See, Peter agrees with Paul. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, if we just finish this section with this. Verse 1, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for all kings, for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reference. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we see here that there are powers, authorities that God has set in place. The idea of it, yes, there are those who abuse it. Yes, dictators have risen up. Yes, there's been horrible times. Yes, we can't agree with everything every president or prime minister or leader says. We can't agree with what every politician says. You may not agree with anything they say. I don't know. But as long as it's not contradicting his word, we're obligated to obey and not to resist. That's what it's saying. But we have a God who is mighty. In Revelation 5.13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and forever. Amen. <laughs> we have a God who can propitiate excuse my alliterations tonight, who can propitiate, who can save. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice, that means, for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. We have a God who's mighty to save. Luke 2, 10 to 11. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Matthew 1, 21. And she shall bring forth a son. Angel speaking to Joseph. She shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people 
from their sins. His name denotes his mission. Every time his name was spoken, it was a reminder of his mission because Jesus corresponds with Joshua in the Old Testament, which means deliverer, savior. He knew why he came to earth. He knew what his mission was to be delivered, to be the savior. But every single time his name was mentioned, it was a reminder, that's why you're here. You have a mission to be the savior of the world. And what a savior we have got. No other God ever sent his son to be the savior of the world. Only our God gave his only begotten son the very best that heaven could afford in order to save us. He's a God who saves. What wonderful testimonies there are today and over the generations of men and women who have come to Christ. Broken, lives shattered, in the wickedness and the depths of the evil of sin, and yet God in his mercy reached down and saved them and made them a saint of God. It's wonderful when you hear a great testimony, isn't it? And you look at somebody and you say, how in the world did God ever reach that person? But he did, and he changed them and made them a new creature in Christ the way he did for us. We have a God who can save. We have a God who can pardon. He will quiet you in his love. He will rest in his love. There's some variations of this, depending which translation or paraphrase you may read. The Amplified says, He will rest in silent satisfaction, and in his love he will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even recall them. Aren't you glad for that? Because that's not a bit like us. Sure it's not. <laughs> if you have a good row with somebody, it's amazing the stuff that comes back to memory, isn't it? That you can just drag up in an instant. Ah, I remember the time you... <laughs> which should have been long since forgotten about. But God doesn't even recall them. <laughs> it's not that there's something wrong with God's memory. It's not that it's a misfiring of the memory. He chose not to remember our sins against us no more forever. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Every single sin you ever committed... It's gone forever. He'll never bring it up again. What a God we have. The Living Bible says, He will love you and not accuse you. He will love you and not accuse you. In His love, He will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even recall them. No wonder the Bible says, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So we're not condemned tonight. We're not walking after the flesh, we're walking after the Spirit. And our sins are gone. 
He removes them as far as the east is from the west. Glory to God. We have a God who gives peace. He will quiet you with his love. 1 John 4 and 8, perfect love casts out all fear. We get afraid about lots of things. We get anxious. We fret. We worry. But the perfect love of God can cast that out. When we realize that we rest in his love, Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives you. Not the type of peace the world has. But my peace I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. <laughs> Horatio Spafford was Presbyterian in the 1800s. He owned a law firm. He's quite a successful businessman. He had a wife and four daughters. And he was a friend of D.L. Moody. But there was a, a great fire in Chicago in the 1800s, and he lost because he, he, he had invested heavily into real estate. But he lost much of what he invested. But he still had some. He wasn't totally broke. And so in order to, to deal with this and get over this, uh, Moody was coming to, into Europe to hold a crusade, him and Arasanke, his song leader, because he knew them, he wanted to go with them, be part of that. So he sent his wife and his daughters on ahead because some business transaction came up that he had to deal with, so he couldn't go with them. And so they went on ahead, but their ship was struck by another ship, and it sank in 12 minutes. Some were rescued, and his wife was rescued. And when she got to Cardiff and Wales, she cabled him. Two words, saved alone. Saved alone. In that instance, he knew that he'd lost his family. Apart from his wife, his daughters, they were all drowned. And so as quick as he could, he arranged for another ship to go, got on board another ship, and made it over to be with his wife. But when he got near as possible to where he felt the ship had sank, he felt inspired to write the famous hymn, It is well, it is well with my soul. And just one verse, one verse only, it says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Sometimes Christians go through the most horrible, trying, testing experiences. And they come through it shining, better than they went into it. And you wonder how. But it was the peace of God that passes all understanding. Shall guard your hearts and your minds, Paul said. So we have a God who gives peace, not as the world gives it. The world's peace is fleeting, it's temporary. But God's peace 
if it's his peace, it's supernatural. Helps us to rise above the circumstances. We have a God who is planning. In other translations says he is silently planning for you in love. It's a difficult verse to translate. That's why there's so many variations. He is silently planning for you in love. Isn't it, isn't it lovely when somebody surprises you, pleasantly surprises you, unbeknown to you, behind your back, they had organized, they had arranged either a gift or a meal or a visit or something, a holiday, you knew nothing about it, to suddenly they said, there it is. Isn't it lovely when that happens? I mean, you're, you're, you're surprised, but it's a lovely surprise. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I, I remember it was, a past, it was a birthday. I can't remember if it was 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever. It was one of those big old birthdays anyway. And uh, it was, I think it was a Friday night. The doorbell rang. And usually at night then, if the doorbell rings, if I'm in, I go to the door. I opened the door, and there was Claire standing there from the Philippines. And I looked at her, and for the first time in my life, I was literally speechless. And I just looked and looked and looked, and I thought, is this, is this, this is surreal, this happening. And she said, are you not going to speak to me? Because <laughs> I must have stood for like 30 seconds. It was a long time just standing there. I, I didn't know what to say or what to make of it, because I knew nothing about it. I, did you know anything about it, Sally? She didn't know anything about it either. There she was. Come in, flew in, got her cousin the driver from the airport, told nobody until she arrived. What a surprise. It was lovely. It really was lovely. And we sat up to about three in the morning talking, <laughs> as we do. God is silently planning for you in love. I wonder what he's up to right now. I wonder what we surprise he has in store for you that's good and pleasant and lovely. That when you get it, you'll say, thank God, that's lovely. Praise you, Lord, I appreciate that. Wasn't expecting that. Ah, I could never imagine that. Thank you, Lord. You know, in the book of Ruth, it's lovely, isn't it? How that she came back with Naomi and of course they were broke, they had nothing. But then Naomi had a very rich relative, Boaz, who was a great farmer, had many fees, and it was harvest time. So Naomi says, go out there and just glean in the harvest because that was the Levitical law. If you're very poor, then you could go out at harvest time and whatever was left lying on the ground, that was yours. You could take that. But Boaz saw her and he fell in love with her. He was smitten at first sight. <laughs> and he made some inquiries, discreet inquiries. Who is the damsel? And they said, oh, that's Naomi. She's come back and so forth. She's a widow. So he said to his reapers, he says, listen, you see when she comes up that drill, you make sure you shake those sheaves and whatever falls on purpose, that's hers. But don't let her see you doing it handfuls of purpose along our path. I wonder what a handful of purpose God has got for you and for me. It could be tomorrow. It could be next month. It could be next year. But he's planning for us in love. And he's got something good in store for each of us.
And then finally, we have a God who is pleased. He will rejoice over you with singing. Imagine, can you believe it? That God himself will sing over you with joy. (laughs) If that wasn't in the Bible, you wouldn't believe it, would you? The NIV says, he will take great delight in you. The Living Bible, he will rejoice over you in great gladness. He will love you and not accuse you. Is that a joyous choir I hear? No, it is the Lord himself exalting over you in happy song. (laughs) No wonder the Bible says there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. And if he rejoices over one sinner that repents, how much more does he rejoice over us eh? who are walking with him and who serve him, who love him. Heaven's going to be a wonderful, wonderful place. And Jesus cannot wait for us to get there, to see him in all his glory. And what a rejoicing that's going to be. Glory to God. And so we have a God who is mighty. Who is a God like our God? No one. We have the great and mighty God. And he is our savior. And he gives us his peace. And he is pleased with us. Can we displease him? Of course we can. But generally speaking, for the most part, he's pleased with us because we're his children. Don't you love your children? Yes, sometimes they displease you, but you love them. They're yours, and you'd do anything for them. Well, our great Heavenly Father is even more than that. So he loves us tonight. So let's pray. Lord, there are not enough superlatives in Scripture to fully describe your greatness and your goodness. So, Lord, we lift up our voice tonight and we say thank you, Lord. Thank you that you found us. Thank you that you saved us. Thank you that we live in Christ tonight. Thank you our lives are ahead with Christ in God. What a blessing we have. So, Lord, as we go out these doors tonight... Lord, believing that somewhere down our pathway, there's a blessing waiting for us. And all we have to do is keep right on walking with you, not turning to the left or to the right, but straight towards you and your kingdom. Then, Lord, we will find those blessings. So we give you thanks in advance and anticipation for all that's ahead, for its good And it's very good. For the will of God is good and perfect and acceptable. And we rejoice in it. So we bless you tonight as we leave this building. Thank you for your blessing, for your favor, for your presence, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information 
www.mpc.org.uk.